conspiracy theories, eh? Wait till you get a load of this. Hello, and welcome to Cracked Sisters Conspiracies, where podcast that covers conspiracy theories, mysteries, and all of our spooky shit. My name's Jackie. And I'm Cassandra. <laughs> we're some sisters. That was really dramatic. I was wondering when you were going to turn around. Well, I didn't know if I should slowly ease into it and be professional. And then you chose the opposite. <laughs> How fun. Uh. How's your worm doing in there? It's doing great. We made Beetlejuice cocktails. Yes, they're green. Mine looks more green than yours does at this point. Yeah, but you had a green um, green worm. worm. It's vodka Midori, which is melon liqueur, Mm -hmm. ginger ale, and then the glass. And more vodka. What'd you say? I said, and then more vodka. And then more vodka. The glass is rimmed in black sugar sprinkles, and there is a, a dead worm. Uh, a gummy worm. <laughs> a gummy worm. supposed to be like the sandworm, the, the Beetlejuice drink. Yeah. Kind of tasty. It is. I like it. It just seemed appropriate. It's October 13th, Friday the oh, yes. 13th. I keep forgetting that. Vibes, but It'll be spooky season. Nothing too crazy has happened today. I've done absolutely nothing today. It was a very slow day. I was productive, but I was not feeling it. I was neither productive nor feeling it. Okay. My forearm, not forearm, my bicep. That's not your forearm. (laughs) It's a bit tender. I'm a little concerned how it might impact my swing tomorrow. Why? Because I did biceps the day before. Oh, I'm like, we did legs. We did do legs, but so we'll see how it goes. We are golfing. I like how you're preemptively trying to explain away your shitty golf. I, I mean, yeah, any excuse I can lean on. But because I'm playing, or we're playing, you know the other person. Yeah. I do not know the other I told person. him we are not good, and he can't be too good to make us feel inferior, and he just has to fucking roll with it. So sometimes I get massive performance anxiety. Uh-huh. Other times when I'm super nervous, I just play well. Yeah, but, it yeah. depends. So we'll see how tomorrow goes. New course, new people. It'll be fun. Woo! Woo! Probably our last golf game for the fourth. It will be. <laughs> yeah. That's definitive. Okay. Today, my topic is something that I think has put me on a Google watch list because it is the Oklahoma City bombing. Oh, thank God. Not child pornography. No, but I typed in bomb a lot. And then, and then when mom and dad called to like, tell me something, they're like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm working on my notes, you know, the bombing. And I go, oh my God. Now they hear me on my phone. I, I, there's just a lot of bomb talk. Oh, oh, so you're just assuming that the little like FBI, CIA. Yeah, because I Googled it 12 times, to- different ways. I said it in a phone. For a half a second, I'm like, did someone notify you that you're on a list? No, <laughs> I, I don't even know what I would do. Yeah, I, I guess we'll find out in a couple of weeks when they show up. I don't know. Finally get through your century. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so today is the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay, I have heard of that event but i know absolutely nothing about it perfect is oklahoma city in oklahoma or it's is- oklahoma city oklahoma okay so it's not like kansas city missouri no <laughs> i get what you're saying but no just making sure no. like <laughs> let's let's hear about, let's learn about it <laughs> Okay, so the bombing was described as a domestic terrorist attack 
that occurred on April 19th, 1995 at the Alfred P. Murroff Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. That was a lot of words. At 9.02 a.m. 9.02 Nope. <laughs> the date that it happened was significant because it was the second year anniversary to Waco. Oh, okay. The bombing was the deadliest act of terrorism in U.S. history up until 9-11, and it still remains the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in the U.S. history. There were 168 deaths and 680 injuries. The bombing was said to have been linked to neo-fascism groups. And for those that don't know, neo-fascism, fascism, Fascism. yeah, that one, is a post-World War II far-right ideology that usually consists of ultra-nationalism, radical supremacy, populism, authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. nativism, xenophobia, and anti-immigration. I'm really proud of you, by the way. Thank you. I just said almost all of those correctly. You did a great job. (laughs) These people sound awful. Yeah, it's like white power people. Yeah. Approximately 90 minutes after the bombing, a vehicle was stopped for not having a license plate, and the driver was identified as Timothy McVeigh. He was arrested for being in possession of an illegal weapon. The name. It, I, yeah, it should be totally very similar. Recognizable. I didn't realize that's what he was from. Mm-hmm. McVeigh was a veteran of the Gulf War and a sympathizer with the U.S. militia movement. He was also an anti-government extremist and a white supremacist. So that's what he looks like. Looks like any dude that we went to high school with. <laughs> <laughs> Terry Nichols was a former farmer and also a U.S. Army veteran. He and McVeigh were in the same platoon in 1988 and became fast friends. They shared the same political views, they had common backgrounds, and they had shared interests in gun collecting and the survivalist movement. That's what he looks like. Oh. You know who this picture reminds me of? Okay, what are your thoughts? I'm going to say the nerdy kid from Freaks and Geeks. Yes, <laughs> Martin Starr. Whatever I his name is, yeah. love him. He's like not too bad looking now, but... Yeah, back then... Bill, his character in yes. Freaks and Geeks. Oh my God, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking too. <laughs> Good. Amazing. Uh, so they were both angry about the government's handling of Ruby Ridge in 1992 and the Waco siege in 1993. Okay. So quick history lesson. Yes, I need a refresher. So Ruby Ridge was an FBI standoff with Randy Weaver, who was also an Army veteran, a white supremacist, and an American survivalist. After failing to appear for a court date related to a neighbor land dispute, a bench warrant was issued for Weaver. On August 21st, 1992, U.S. Marshals went out to his house to arrest him for his warrant. One of the deputies had shot and killed Weaver's dog, which caused his son Sammy to open fire at the deputies, naturally. I mean, yeah. (laughs) You kill my dog, you're not going to live. There was a gun battle, and Weaver and his family refused to surrender. There was a nine-day standoff, during which time a sniper shot and killed Weaver's wife while she was holding her infant baby. On August 30th, Weaver and his three children surrendered. So that's like a not great thing. There's a whole bunch of kids there. Yeah, it's it's his him, his wife, and then his three children. One being an infant, were, and then his dog that also got so killed. Were they complicit in it, or were they just along for the ride? And Daddy's office rocker, and they had to like suffer. Oh, oh they're an interesting family. Okay. Like they've been raised a certain way to be anti-government, so they weren't going to go with the program anyway, based on how just, they've been raised. Okay, but the fact right. the deputies opened fire first, they kind of started it, which is how a lot of people viewed it. Okay. And then Waco, which only gets worse. (laughs) So that was a 51-day standoff between February 28th of 1993 and April 19th of 1993. Wait, was it a leap year? 
I don't know. That one day could have made it. As I wrote that down, I went, huh, that's the the day. And then I moved on. (laughs) (laughs) It involved the U.S. federal government and Texas state law enforcement officials versus a religious cult known as the Branch Davidians, led by David Koresh. The ATF got involved when they suspected the cult of stockpiling illegal weapons, and they obtained a search warrant for the property and an arrest warrant for David. A news reporter unknowingly tipped off the cult members when he asked them for directions because they knew that the ATF was planning the raid. And so they were there to film it, but he got lost. So he saw someone and said, hey, where is this place? Like, I'm a news. I'm trying to watch the raid. And they go, oh, it's right up there. And then they told David, the cult leader. (laughs) What an idiot. I know. I'm sure in his mind that was just like a benign, innocuous thing, but you dummy. So long story short, there was a fire and the compound went up in flames and 86 people were killed, including multiple children. Oh no! So something happened. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it was the feds side or the ATF side. They did something that caused a fire and the cult leader refused to exit and everyone followed him because he was the cult leader and again it's one of the most known government fuck-ups in history and a lot of people especially anti-government people will quote that in ruby ridge when talking about why they hate the fucking government i mean they have a decent argument yeah i guess i I would i would agree with that them in their line of thought at least yeah yes So in March of 1993, McVeigh visited during the Waco standoff. He later decided to bomb the federal building as a response to the raids and to protest what he believed to be the U.S. government's efforts to restrict rights of private citizens and particularly those under the Second Amendment. Mm. Prior to his plan of attacking a building, he had considered assassinating Attorney General Janet Reno. (laughs) I forgot about her. I don't know who that is. You don't know who Janet Reno is? I know the name. Oh, you should look up a picture of her. Why? Just is she just, ugly? I mean, <laughs> that's as a, a yes. woman, I feel like I am not able to comment on oh, another. Okay, she looks familiar. This, yeah, I knew if you saw her, you would recognize her. Yeah. Oh. So he wanted to kill her, Janerino, uh, <laughs> an FBI sniper named Lon Harucci, and his, other. His name was L O N. Oh no! Oh, I'm thinking like L A W N. Like, mow the grass. No, lawn. L-O-N. And other government officials. He had a couple of specifics for the building that he intended to bomb, which included he wanted many people to die. The building had to house at least two of the three federal law enforcement agencies, FBI, ATF, and DEA. And he wanted to minimize non-government casualties. He really only wanted those in, those in power to, to die. In December of 1994, McVeigh visited the Alfred P. Murdoch Federal Building. <laughs> it's the guy's last name. It really fucks me up. So I'm just Is gonna it Murdoch or Murdoch? It's Murdoch. Mur- I don't know where the D came from. Murray? Murray? Okay. He went to the Federal Building to inspect it as a potential target. He learned that it housed 14 federal agencies, including the DEA, ATF, and the Social Security Administration. They're all in the same building. Yeah. I feel like that's a liability. I feel like I'm shocked this didn't happen sooner. Like, you should really spread that shit out. 
McVeigh chose the federal building because he expected the glass on the front to shatter under the impact of the blast. The blast. The blast. The boom. He also believed that its adjacent large open parking lot across the street might absorb and dissipate some of the force and protect the occupants of nearby non-federal buildings. Okay. So, like, he was putting in some serious thought. There was an effort to contain it. Additionally, he believed that the open space around the building would provide better photo opportunities for propaganda purposes. So it's not all selfless, trying to save some lives. Sure. It's all for the gram. Yeah, basically. Way before. (laughs) He planned the attack for April 19th, 1995 at 11 a.m., but that was later changed to 9 a.m. To coincide with not only the second anniversary of Waco, like I mentioned, but also the 220th anniversary of the Battles of Lexington and Concord during the American Revolution. Don't ask me about that. I don't fucking know. I'm not going to. I will admit that history is one of my Achilles heels. Fucking hate history. So bad at it. And I feel so dumb. It's okay. You learned things. You learned about Waco and Ruby Ridge today. That's good enough. On October of 1994, McVeigh had made plans for his bomb. He intended on using more than 5,000 pounds of ammunition nitrate fertilizer mixed with about 1,200 pounds of liquid nitromethane and 350 pounds of Tovex, which is a water gel explosive. Hmm. He planned on placing the bomb inside of 16 55-gallon drums. It's a lot of drums. It's a lot of bombs. <laughs> now that he had a plan, he had to go and buy all of these additives. But he was having difficulties because the large amounts of the items that he wanted to buy was highly suspicious. And people were refusing to sell it to him. So, like, what kind of stuff was... What are the additives that he would have to... The three things I just read you. Oh, like the fertilizer and stuff like that? Can you not spread it out amongst stores and, like... But he needs 5,000 pounds of fertilizer. That would be so many stores. He tried to go to these locations that do bulk orders, but normally people are farmers or they have some sort of reason. So he would go to these places and come up with a lie. But it's like you, when they asked one (laughs) follow-up question... He just, he failed. He crumbled. How dare you? He somehow managed to get some of the items here and there, as well as substitutions, and he rented a storage container where he housed all of the components. Mm. He managed to get inside. That's my input. On April 14th, 1995, McVeigh paid for a motel room at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City, Kansas. The next day, he rented a 1993 Ford F700 truck, which I've I've never never heard of. I've never even heard of that. It's it's like a large rental truck. So he rented one from (laughs) the trunk company Ryder and using the name Robert D. Kling. Kling? K-L-I-N-G. On April 16th, 1995, he and Nichols drove to Oklahoma City, where he parked a getaway vehicle, which was a yellow 1977 Mercury Marquis, Mm -hmm. several blocks from the federal building. After removing the car's license plate, he left a note covering the VIN that read, quote, not abandoned, please do not tow, we'll move by April 23rd, it needs a battery and a cable. Both men then returned to Kansas. Isn't the VIN on the inside of the car, did he leave it unlocked? No. There's there's multiple locations for a VIN. The most... Oh, it's not just by the front door and the... No, so the most common is, this is your windshield? Yeah. This is the driver's side, it's right here. Where the hood latch meets your windshield. I never knew that. Yeah. So he covered it with a note so they couldn't read it. Oh. And then the note said, don't tell. I, I just learned something new today. There you go. 
On April 17th and 18th, both McVeigh and Nichols moved the bomb supplies from the storage unit and strategically loaded them into the Ryder's rental truck. After finishing the truck bomb, the two men separated. Nichols returned to his home in Harrington, and McVeigh traveled with the truck to Junction City. The bomb cost about $5,000, and in 2022, that would be equivalent to $10,000 mm-hmm. to make. On April 19th, 1995, the day of the bombing, McVeigh drove the Ryder's rental truck towards the federal building. With him, he had papers from the Turner Diaries, which is a fictional story of white supremacists who ignite a revolution by blowing up the FBI headquarters at 9.15 in the morning using a truck bomb. Oh. Pretty symbolic. Yes. (laughs) At 8.50 a.m., McVeigh entered Oklahoma City. At 8.57 a.m., the Regency Tower's apartment's lobby security camera captured the rental truck driving towards the federal building. At the same time, McVeigh lit the five-minute fuse. Which must be terrifying. You're driving the truck still and you like light the five minute fuse. So my and hope you don't fuck up. My perception of time is generally <laughs> very worse. <laughs> and I always think that I have more time than I do. So he <laughs> planned this, did the drive, knew exactly how you much time he had. To. Yeah. I would be there with a stopwatch in my <laughs> hand because I wouldn't trust my judgment or I would think that the clock on the vehicle would fail. Uh-huh. I could not. Oh, it gets worse. I wouldn't be that person. Three minutes later at 9 a.m., still one block away, he lit the two-minute fuse. <laughs> you cut your time down by more than half. He parked the truck in a drop-off zone situated under the building's daycare center. Oh. Yeah. No. Yeah. Exited and locked the truck. As he headed away to his getaway vehicle, he purposely dropped the keys for the rental truck a few blocks in between so no one would be able to just easily find it and move the truck. Sure. At 9.02 a.m., the Ryder truck containing over 4,800 pounds of ammunition nitrate fertilizer nitromethane, and diesel fuel mixture detonated in front of the north side of the nine-story federal building. One-third of the building was destroyed by the explosion, which created a 30-feet-wide by 8-feet-deep crater. Oh, shit. The blast destroyed or damaged 324 buildings within a four-block radius. Wow. It shattered the glass of nearly 258 nearby buildings, and the broken glass alone accounted for 5% of the deaths and a total 69% of the injuries outside of the building. The glass alone was detrimental. Oh my God. The blast destroyed and burned 86 cars around the site. That's a bummer. That would suck. Insurance, yeah. though. Especially like as long as you're not in it. But yeah, insurance <laughs> for sure. Hopefully you have good coverage. Hopefully. Insurance is kind of a scam. But after the bomb, the FBI was quickly trying to figure out who was responsible, and they had three guesses. Oh. Not, like, individuals. Three broad guesses. Okay. So, one being international terrorists. Sure. Possibly the same crew responsible for the World Trade bombing. Uh-huh. Which, fun fact, is not 9-11. There was a separate incident at the World Trade Center? Cause, yeah, because this happened in 1994. Then, or 93. Ten years before. Yeah. Oh, eight, but it's seven, a World Trade eight. bombing. Interesting. I didn't look it up, but I thought, huh, I should look that up someday. Well, we would have been so young that that I wasn't born yet. You were born yet. That wouldn't have been on my radar. A drug cartel, the second option of who could have done it. And then third, and this is a good job for them, anti-government radicals attempting to start a rebellion against the federal government. (laughs) It would have been guest number one, but I 
Oh, I mean, terrorists I mean, are almost always number one. I guess if there was a terrorist incident mm-hmm. previously, then okay, maybe number one spot, but at least number two. Yeah, I don't get the drug cartel, but whatever. As I mentioned earlier, McVeigh was arrested just 90 minutes after the bombing. After booking McVeigh into jail, Trooper Hanger searched his patrol car and found a business card which had been concealed by McVeigh after he was handcuffed. So he had it in his hand and he got handcuffed, but he dropped it in the patrol car. So when he came back, he checked the back seat and found it. The card was from Wisconsin Military Surplus Store. Mm. Was the words, quote, TNT at $5 a stick? Need more, end quote. The card was later used as evidence during McVeigh's trial. I can see why. (laughs) I know, right? While the feds investigated the VIN on the rental truck, they were able to link the truck to a specific rider rental car company. Using a sketch of one of the suspects, McVeigh, the owner of the rental truck company was able to positively ID McVeigh. Oh, wow. He was also identified by Leah McGown of the Dreamland Motel, who remembered him parking a large yellow rider truck in the lot. McVeigh had signed in under his real name at the motel. What the f- And used an address that matched one on his forged driver's license and the charge sheet at the Perry Police Station. So I read her statement and she goes, yeah, I work at a motel. People constantly are using a fake name. They have a tell. They go to write it. They kind of look up as if to remember their fake name. She goes, at that moment, I talked to him and I asked him a couple questions. And she goes, I think I distracted him that he forgot what he was doing and he wrote down his real name. I was going to say, like, that's a rookie move yeah. to fuck up like that. Oh, he does a lot of rookie moves. Oh, You'll so, find out. So he was not a sophisticated No, I mean, the bomb itself was interesting, but based his on actions. everything I'm about to read, it's, it's, <laughs> he really did not put enough thought into this. Got it. On April 21st, 1995, a court hearing on the gun charges, because that's originally what he was arrested for. But before McVeigh's release, federal agents took him into custody as they continued their investigation on the bombing. The FBI got a search warrant for McVeigh's father's house. The information they found there, along with the fake address McVeigh used, which was Terry Nichols' real address, so his accomplice's real address, they started to look for the two Nickel brothers, Terry and James, because they didn't know which one or if both were involved. On April 21st, 1995, Terry Nichols learned that he was being hunted and turned himself in. Investigators discovered incriminating evidence at his home, including ammunition, nitrate, and blasting caps, an electric drill used to drill out the locks at the quarry, books on bomb making, and a hand-drawn map of downtown Oklahoma City on which the federal building and the spot where the getaway vehicle was parked had been circled. Just a nice, neat little package right there. On April 25th, 1995, James Nichols was also arrested, but he was released 32 days after for lack of evidence. So the brother was also brought in, but they realized quickly he had nothing to do with it. Got it. McVeigh's sister, Jennifer, was accused of illegally mailing ammunition to McVeigh, but she was granted immunity for exchange in her testimony against her brother. Ooh. McVeigh. holidays would be awkward after that. Well, not if you're in prison. (laughs) (laughs) McVeigh was tried before Nichols was, and he was sentenced to death. A mutual friend of both McNay and Nichols testified against them both after a plea agreement because he was somehow kind of third party involved. So he's like, you know what? I didn't make the bombs. I'll tell you everything. Just give me a plea deal. Nichols' wife testified as a defense witness because now we're at his trial, but her story actually ended up helping the prosecution's case. (laughs) Dude, she fucked up here. She said her husband had been living a double life prior to the bombing, using aliases, renting storage lockers, 
and lying that he had broken off his relationship with McVeigh. So she was a witness for the defense. And all she's doing is just saying he did all this shady shit, but he's he's not guilty. Huh? Oh, my God. She also testified. Oh no. Probably gets worse. <laughs> that Nichols traveled to Oklahoma City three days before the bombing. And lastly, she failed to give an alibi for the day of the bombing. And the prosecution said that Nichols helped McVeigh assembled the truck bomb on a specific day and she couldn't give his whereabouts for that day either. I can't imagine. She was a prosecution's dream. Absolutely. <laughs> but like from his perspective, he's like, fuck. So for Nichols, the jury deliberated for 41 hours over a period of six days and actually acquitted him on December what? 24th, 1997 of actually detonating the bomb and first degree murder. They did, however, convict him for conspiring with McVeigh to use a weapon of mass destruction, which was a capital offense, and involuntary manslaughter for the deaths of the federal law enforcement officers. So instead of getting the max of everything, they quitted him of that, but they weren't going to let him go. So they came back with lesser charges that he was found guilty of. One of my early boyfriends ended up going to prison for manslaughter. Which one? His name was Brian. That's when we lived in Newberry Park. It was one of those junior high teen center boyfriends. Was it a DUI? No. So what had actually happened was he, I guess, was at a party. He was into the party scene or whatever. In middle school? Oh, no. He's an adult adult now. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. This was like, I didn't know him at this time. He was an adult and he was at a party and he had given this girl some drugs or whatever. And she got... Whacked out of her mind, ended up running onto the freeway completely naked, and then ended up getting hit and killed. How interesting. And so, yeah, he was sentenced for manslaughter. And I remember seeing it. I was reading the local newspaper. I still (laughs) lived with mom and dad. I'm like, oh, my God. He's like in an orange jumpsuit. I have since looked him up. He is apparently not in prison anymore, but he looks like a fucking tweaker. So in voluntary manslaughter, it's not that much time, honestly. It's like under 10 years. Yeah. I mean, he's... Probably in his 40s now, but... Interesting. It was, yeah. So on June 4th, 1998, Nichols was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He also received a concurrent 48-year sentence for his eight involuntary manslaughter convictions. So now we're going to get into the conspiracy about this. (laughs) What could there possibly be? So some people believe that one or a combination of theories are kind of involved, such as an additional co-conspirator that was never found. There were possibly multiple explosives planted inside of the federal building. Mm -hmm. Government officials and the president at time, Bill Clinton, knew of the impending bombing and that the bombing was done to frame and stigmatize the militia movement. Mm -hmm. Little, not PDA, uh, PSA, there we go. (laughs) Everything I say from now until the end of this, I got... From a compilation of either Wikipedia or this guy on Facebook. So take it with a grain of salt is what you're saying? All the salt. <laughs> the biggest salt like you've ever seen. There you go. Because, I mean, it, it, so the video I watched is from a person named Gabriel Nichols. It was very compelling because it's literally everything I mentioned plus like five other things all rolled into one video. And there's footage from the time that corroborates what he's saying, whether it's doctored and stuff, I don't know. So that's why I can't. And that's how conspiracy theories. Of course. So that's obviously how I can't contest to this. I don't know for a fact, but it was a compelling argument. So that's all I'm going to say. Okay. The first conspiracy is that there was a co-conspirator. 
Several witnesses, 24, I believe, reported having seen a man with McVeigh around the time of the bombing who investigators dubbed John Doe number two. He was described as approximately 5'9", muscular, dark hair, and he was wearing a baseball hat. Some witnesses stated he drove an older model pickup truck and he had a dragon tattooed on his left forearm. This is what he looked like. Or the sketch. (laughs) He looks very angry. He does. In 1997, the FBI arrested a man named Michael Brescia, a member of the Aryan Republic Army, who resembled the artist's rendering of John Doe Number 2. However, they later released him, reporting that their investigation found he was not involved in the bombing. An ATF agent named Carol Howe was working undercover and infiltrated a white supremacist enclave, and I'm going to fuck this up. It's like Elohim City, Oklahoma. Elohim? Yeah, you're, I think you're spot on sorry for anyone in oklahoma <laughs> well it's like a white power fucking city so you know oh, maybe i'm not that sorry <laughs> in 1995 she filed a report saying a man named andre strasimir who was the elohom's city security chief had spoken about destroying a federal building and he had visited the Murrah building with another man. Two days after the bombing, How, the undercover agent, mm-hmm. reminded the ATF of her earlier report and urged investigation into a possible connection between Elohim City and the bombing. McVeigh is known to have telephoned Elohim City two weeks before the bombing. Hello? <laughs> that was the warning button. <laughs> Wikipedia used. Yeah. Telephone home. E.T. Telephone home. I don't know why my pinky came out. I meant that to be my pinky. A woman named Jane Graham, who was an employee and survivor of the bombing, stated that in the days leading up to the bombing, she observed many suspicious men she believed could have been involved in the bombing. They were men unfamiliar to her, and they had been wearing maintenance or military uniforms. Graham later identified one of the suspicious men as Andre Stressmere. Trust no one. She told authorities, but was ignored. Because she's a woman. Probably. That's our plight. Nichols had alluded to another co-conspirator in a 2006 declaration when he said, quote, There are others who assisted McVeigh whose identities are unknown to me. Identities. <laughs> There's a lot of words, okay? <laughs> Your notes are so comprehensive compared to what I have. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, Nichols believed that this Andre Strasmere was an agent provocateur. Mm-hmm. An FBI agent named Larry A. Potts was involved in the bombing plot. So he's like, hey, look at this fucking... Andre guy, look at this FBI guy. I don't know who helped speak Bay, but I know someone did. You should look into these people. Snitch. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was already in fucking <laughs> prison. What's he got to lose? The second conspiracy theory is that there were additional explosives. Mm. So after McVeigh ignited the rental truck bomb, local news stations swarmed the area to cover the bombing. Uh, During those reports, I know it's so fucking dumb, by the way. During those reports, the local news channels had reported a second bombing and then the third bomb within the first few hours of the original bombing. One of the news reports said, quote, a second explosive was found and diffused, end quote. Another news station said, quote, the Justice Department is reporting that a second explosive device has been found, end quote. A third news reporter said, quote, they then found a third device, which was also larger than the first, end quote. 
And then someone on scene who was interviewed by KWTV said, quote, and I see another bomb truck going. So apparently they're going to get out that third bomb, end quote. Side quest. Yeah. What was the movie called with Jeremy Renner and Catherine Bigelow, where he's out in the desert overseas disarming bombs? That was his big movie breakout. She was a female director. Hurt Locker. Oh, my God. I've never seen that, I don't think. I've never seen it. No. So good. So, yeah, his job was bomb diffusing, but in Middle East yeah. countries. I just remember the first time I watched that, the anxiety that I felt as he's in his bomb suit trying to disable. I don't fucking understand bomb squat people. Oh. oh my gosh. Fun story about that. I got a call once at USPS here in town. The mail. The, the mail. United States Postal Service. <laughs> they called and said, hey, we received a suspicious package inside of our fucking a bin that, that's on wheels that they carry all the oh, packages the, in. The mail cart thing. The mail cart, yeah. yeah. So they're like, we got one in there and had no return address. It just seemed weird. The writing was weird. What? I don't fucking remember. And I'm like, cool. What the fuck do you want me to do about that? And they're like, I don't know. Come check it out. I'm like, I'm not getting blown up. So I called <laughs> someone who had a bomb dog. And <laughs> this dog is crazy. <laughs> I had never interacted with this dog. I really didn't talk to the handler that much. He was very nice, but... The dog or the handler? The handler. <laughs> but I was very intimidated and the dog was crazy. So he comes on scene with the dog and they're like, okay, I think it's in there. And I'm standing at a distance that I would definitely die. But, you know, it made me feel better to be five steps away. And he's like, okay. So he like picks it up oh and puts God. it on the ground. And then he takes other packages and lines them up with, you know, maybe a couple feet of spacing in between. And then he releases his dog who i would think would maybe strategically go like and sniffy crap, go you know do a, a serpentine yeah this dog okay did he like jump flock. <laughs> i mean i guess it's one way to find uh, out i'm like ducking i'm like do i run do i not and the handler is not caring whatsoever so obviously he had no reason to believe this was real i was literally i'm still sweating thinking about it and that fucking dog i'm like you're the worst you have one job i think your whole life like black in front of your eyes <laughs> like i'm too young for this oh my god <laughs> and then he's like all right we're good and he left he didn't explain there was nothing there was no debrief there was nothing i'm like what's that your dog normally fights bombs it was it was a terrifying experience i hope whatever postal workers <laughs> They were gone. Oh, I'm like, you put a fucking post-it on that box when it gets to the recipient. The amount of stress that you caused me and right? the strife that you... I hope it's worth it. It was shoes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I think maybe the handler could tell when he picked it up or something. I don't know. Because they opened it. They're allowed to. USPS is allowed to inspect any packages. And it was shoes. Oh. <laughs> so my life almost died over shoes. Anywho. That, oh, okay. Back to the multiple explosives <laughs> theory. Not shoes, though. <laughs> Not shoes. Physicist Samuel T. Cohen, known as the primary inventor of the neutron bomb, stated in a letter to an Oklahoma politician that he did not believe fertilizer bomb was capable of causing the destruction at the federal building. So it wouldn't have been big enough to do the damage. Yeah, exactly. And then some dude named Brigadier General Benton K. Parton that is the most, like, stuffy Englishman <laughs> name I've ever heard. Well, he was in the Air Force. That's I, his, like, Air Force name. Benton. 
I thought the brigadier was the part you were going to have. Brigadier is part of his title. I know. Well, he doesn't get to choose his first name. <laughs> so he expressed an opinion that there must have been additional explosives inside of the building to cause the damage that everyone was seeing. Okay. So that kind of backs the theory that there were multiple explosives inside that they never reported on. The news never mentioned it in the trial, or the news mentioned it at the time. They stopped. And then at the trial, it was never brought up. Oh. The third conspiracy theory is that government officials and the president knew about the planned bombing. In 1993, McVeigh had wrote a letter to his sister, to which was later published by the New York Times in 1998. In the letter, he claimed to have been recruited, along with nine others, during his time at Fort Bragg into a secret black ops team. The team was responsible for smuggling drugs into the U.S. to pay for covert activities by the government. Which... If I have learned anything in this podcast, it's that's a, probably 100% I'm realistic. not even phased, honestly. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> probably. They also were to work hand-in-hand hand with civilian police agencies to quiet anyone who was deemed a security risk. Mm-hmm. So he believed that he, according to him, was in the secret fucking thing club that he was introduced to while he, he was in the army. And he thinks that he is getting pinned for this because of that. Because for whatever reason, they wanted to test these bombs and they knew about it. They did intentionally, but they needed a fall guy and they chose him, according to McVeigh. That would be a bummer. (laughs) It would. (laughs) David Paul Hammer, a convicted murderer at the same facility as McVeigh, reported that McVeigh claimed to have been, quote, an undercover operative for the Department of Defense. McVeigh also allegedly told him that Andres Strasmere was a similar operative, but with a different handler, and they worked together in planning the bomb. So this is this dude's name again for a third person, or fourth person bringing him up. So there's a theme, there's a common thread. Government still never looked into him, according to my research. Not on the surface. Not on the surface. Some people reported having seen a bomb squad truck parked across the street two hours prior to the bombing. Like, in anticipation of what was going to happen? Yeah, allegedly, yeah. The show 2020 reported that they received documents relating to the bombing, and in the documents, they found that someone called the Executive Secretary Office of the Justice Department in Washington and said, quote, the federal building in Oklahoma City has just been bombed, which wouldn't be weird, except the call came in 24 minutes before the bombing. What? Allegedly. Everything where's the, I say. Where's the timestamps and call logs to prove that? <laughs> I ain't got that. Okay. <laughs> McVeigh. <Someone does. laughs> McVeigh was scheduled to be executed on May 16th, 2001. His execution had to be rescheduled due to the fact that the FBI failed to turn over thousands of documents to McVeigh's defense attorneys. His execution was rescheduled because obviously they found nothing of use in those turned over documents. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so his ex- execution was rescheduled on June 11th, 2001. Just a few months before 9-11. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. However, a witness from the execution reported that McVeigh was still breathing when they, like, closed the curtain. What? And then no autopsy was performed on McVeigh. Isn't that, like, protocol? You do that after? Usually. And then apparently, according to my, you know... Sources. Prison officials admitted that the hearse that they had was a decoy and McVeigh was not actually inside of it. Ooh. 
shady and then the last conspiracy theory is the naysayers the naysayers so in 2000 is it a bunch of horses yep (laughs) that's what it is how'd you know because i am that good (laughs) cracked it wide open in 2006 a u.s congressman named dana (laughs) a what u.s congressman there you go did i not say that i said (laughs) congressman whatever sounds like (laughs) congressman This dude (laughs) said that there was a subcommittee for oversight investigations, and he said that they were supposed to investigate whether the bombers had assistance from foreign sources. Because again, they're still really hooked on like a terrorist terrorist thing or connection at least. So in December 28th of 2006, he told CNN, quote, there is nothing wrong with adding to a conspiracy theory when there might be a conspiracy in fact, end quote. And so he was a U.S. congressman. So it's not like a random, I know we got a little left foot on his name or left turn yeah so he was a u.s congressman a person of status okay so that's what he said he also criticized the fbi for not explaining how nichols who did not work steadily paid for his several trips to the philippines because that was a big thing because they thought that maybe he was meeting a terrorist in the philippines i didn't feel like Mm -hmm. going into it he had twenty thousand dollars in cash on him oh they didn't they being the fbi find explosive concealed inside of nichols's house until a decade after the bombing is that even the same then like if it's 10 years later how can you prove that because they're the fbi okay the fbi did not explain the rush to rule out the existence of john doe number two and that just kind of fell by the wayside And then the FBI did not thoroughly investigate possible connections between McVeigh and the Aryan Republican Army dude, Andre Strasmere. Oh, gotcha. So this congressman was like, yeah, you know, obviously people can add to a conspiracy because I think this is, it doesn't make sense. There's all these reasons that the FBI didn't do things and it makes it sound questionable. On September 28th, 2009, a Salt Lake City attorney named Jesse Trenadue released security tapes that he had obtained from the FBI through the Freedom of Information Act that showed the federal building before and after the blast from the security cameras. The tapes are blank at points before 9.02 a.m., the time of detonation. So, like, they were edited or stopped? They just, they were blank. How weird. The attorney said that the government's reasoning for the missing footage during the time of the bombing was that the tape was being replaced at the time. How convenient. To that, the attorney was quoted saying, quote, four cameras in four different locations going blank at the same time on the morning of April 19th, 1995. There ain't no such thing as a coincidence, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't at all. Wow. I mean... I kind of agree that, with that. Right? That's suspicious. That is a little sus. But the attorney had a personal stake in this investigation because his brother Kenneth had actually died while in federal custody during what he believed was an interrogation because the FBI or the feds had mistaken Kenneth for a possible bomb conspirator. So he was being held by the federal government. He died while in their custody. They refused to do an investigation about it. So he said, I think they think he was somehow involved in the bombing and an interrogation went wrong and he died. So they wouldn't investigate it, but he did receive like a a million dollar hush money, hush money suit. Yeah. For like pain and suffering or whatever. It doesn't seem like enough. No. 
In November of 2014, Naval War College professor and NSA intelligence officer wrote, quote, it would be good if a serious relook of Oklahoma City bombings, many unanswered questions were established for the event because the existence of important evidence indicating there's something that we should be also talking about, end quote. So it's kind of like a a chopped up quote that they put into one, but he's saying, hey, something doesn't sound right. I used to work for the NSA. I know the government can be shady. You should probably look into this There's more than what they're saying. There. Got it. He also cautioned that the bombing had attracted more than its share of charlatans and self-styled experts, some of whom were eager to pin the bombing on Arabs, Masons, Jews, and perhaps space aliens. Ooh. He was also urging officials to re-examine the attorney's investigation based on two points. What were those points? McVeigh and Nichols' visit to the Philippines, because okay. apparently it's suspicious. And the activities of the German national and friend of McVeigh, Andre Strasmere. Got it. So that is the Oklahoma City bombing. Interesting. So on a cracked scale, I don't think we have one between definitely and... That's perfectly plausible. But that's definitely deniable. That's like a ha ha he 50-50. I almost I, a little bit more like there. I'm at least 90% sure there is something that was not discussed. Something about... A foot. A foul foot. And there's a chicken foot. Something <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was pretty interesting because when I was doing these notes, especially when you kind of get into the this person told this person uh-huh. who told this person, it's like it's very easy to discredit it. But after doing this podcast for even the short time we've done it, I'm like, I believe this person. I believe yeah. this person. Because the government has been proven to do this type There's of shit. There's been some shady shit along the All way. The time. So I'm like, I believe it. Trust no one. But please, I don't put me on the list. <laughs> this is just for entertainment purposes <laughs> and research purposes. That's it. <laughs> I'm really nervous. <laughs> Disregard her Google searches. There yeah. is no... Malice meant. Oh <laughs> Not at all. God. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually very interesting. I had heard of it. I mm-hmm. knew the name and McVeigh's name. Yes. As soon as you said it, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't realize that was the same guy. This all happened. I was not in any position to understand no. it in that time. And so it wasn't new. Yeah, I knew I knew that a building, a federal building had been blown up and I knew it was by daycare. That was all I knew. And then I'd never heard of a conspiracy about it until I watched that facebook video and i went it's really interesting i should look into this that was actually very insightful Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing you're welcome so what are you going to cover for next episode so for our next episode which is going to be a piggyback episode (laughs) off of today and hopefully we'll take a a snack break here but given the current season that we are in it is october it Mm -hmm. is spooky season i thought i would lean more to the spooky shit side of things Uh and we're gonna touch upon the origin of halloween yes i figured it would go well with our themed drinks and it being friday the 13th and all of that jazz so that's what we will be doing next good shit good shit so if you wanted to reach us we have instagram cracked sisters conspiracies you can dm us give us episode suggestions feedback but nice feedback we have twitter or x and facebook that exist but they really don't exist we have an email cracked sisters conspiracies at gmail.com that we would love someone to send us an email through 
Other than our parents. We have a Patreon that is being (laughs) held up by familial support and nothing else. Clips of glue. We do have a a TikTok. TikTok. Yeah. And so. Allegedly. I've never seen that. It's been created. We have to go through all of the footage Mm -hmm. that we have to like start doing clips for it. Yeah. But. I mean, lots of people find their fame on TikTok. So maybe maybe we'll get more listeners to the Crack Sisters Conspiracy audience. Yeah. But uh, with that, stay cracked, y'all. And have a great day.